the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. you've got the resume for, but what does it mean to you? Well, it's, I, 
Tony, uh, uh, when I looked at the uh, at the list, uh, I I didn't know any of the other names on there, and he uh, had people that were he had a lawyer, he had an accountant, he had all of the the parts that you would need, uh, had outstanding people, and and from having visited and spent time with him up there, he's uh, Tony extremely well respected up in uh, upstate New York, and involved in uh, a lot of projects. And uh, just uh, somebody who showed me the first time around that uh, after a meeting with uh, with George Steele that um, started the original Hall of Fame and, and, and passed the torch along and has since then retired. And he's the kind of guy that doesn't, uh, he gets the itch and he doesn't like sitting around and not be doing something. And so he wanted to come back and do it again and do an international pro wrestling hall of fame and ask once again if i would uh, work with him and um you know flattered that uh, that he wanted to once again uh, include me now since this will be the last show for a while i figured since we talk about so many different names and different guys in the show i figure some would do a little bit different maybe do a word association so i'll just name someone at random and you just think of a phrase or a story, you know, something, not something overly crazy or long, but kind of like the first thing that pops in your head, maybe the first thought or phrase, or maybe a first like quick story, you know, I'll just name somebody at random and, you know, you just give your first thought. What do you think? I'll take a shot at it. First guy, just, just to throw out there, Lex Luger. Hmm. Lex Luger is, uh, is someone who, uh, very gifted athletically in terms of his physique. Uh, I uh, came to work with Lex uh, while I was uh, with the Hall of Fame, and and he he, um, he got crosswise with Bruiser Brody, <laughs> probably that's his biggest claim to fame. Uh, he was in a cage match somewhere in Florida, and uh, Bruiser Brody was. Uh, one of the outstanding uh, talents that ever associated with the pro wrestling world, but he was also somebody who was, um, I'm trying to pick the right words. He was somebody who didn't have a lot of patience. He, he just liked to deal with people that had the same commitment that he did to whatever he was doing and got involved with Lex and, and, and they were in a cage match. It didn't go well. <laughs> and took exception to Lex and, uh, all of a sudden, uh, I can imagine with uh, with Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody being inside of a a steel cage, and then have him lose patience with me, not satisfied with my performance or my commitment, and uh, all of a sudden let his frustrations be known to the point that Lex Luger finally climbed up to a top turnbuckle, clawed his way over the top, and 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 clawed his way down to the floor, made a beeline for the dressing room, grabbed his clothes out the door, and um, that was the end. Of, that was the end of that relationship. <laughs> and then went right straight to the four horsemen. So the yeah. first thing that comes to your mind when you think of four horsemen? Ah, I think of it as being a a a, a unique collection of of uh, individuals all of whom were already at the top of their game and who uh, individually uh, also
also got along with everybody else that that was uh, mentioned in the group, and we kind of uh, were already spending a lot of time, you know, by choice with each other. We were all active in the business at the time and just had tremendous uh, success and kind of fed off off of each other and uh, ended up creating uh, creating a, a situation that we were a group that uh, our success was uh, kind of something that the fans created and ran with and just thrilled that uh, I'm sure as I look back with my legacy in, in the world of professional wrestling, you know, one of my proudest moments, proudest accomplishments was that uh, I was uh, part of it and uh, considered that I still use that uh, description when I, when I talk about where I'm going going to appear or wherever my name is used, I always, James J. Dillon, the leader of the original Four Horsemen. Absolutely. What about the NWO? I'm sorry, the NWO. NWO. Mm-hmm. Um, the NWO was, was uh, a group of guys who I want to say, I'm not going to say that they, that they, copied what the four horsemen were but it was a similar a similar situation but the horsemen were something that would be often imitated and 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 would never be duplicated because you're talking about a history that goes back um you know well over 25 years and the, uh, the nwo was uh, was something that had some degree of success too but uh and I can say this, you know, I'm, I'm, that I'm with with pride that uh, you know they did well as a, as a group and and had recognition. But there's only one four horsemen, almost always imitated but never duplicated. What about the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Eric Bischoff? Uh, you know, I always have had a. Uh, an attitude with the business that if I don't have something good to say about something, I kind of prefer not to say anything at all. So I don't really have much to say uh, about Eric Bischoff. He uh, started up uh, in Minneapolis working for Vern Gagne and, you know, and, and I don't mean this, mean this to, to be demeaning, but, uh, you know, they said that he was uh, um, somebody that went and got the coffee for everybody and really didn't have a meaningful role up there. And then uh, when he got down to Atlanta and uh, found himself the right place at the right time and the Turner organization uh, was looking for somebody to run the, the wrestling division and somebody pointed out that, that – uh, that Bischoff had been uh, a a television guy who also had some knowledge of wrestling. So that immediately endeared the people uh, in the Turner organization that had this, this hot commodity of, uh, of their wrestling division, but really didn't understand it. And there were some people in the Turner organization that, uh, you know, really looked down on wrestling as, as being, beneath them and 
were kind of embarrassed by the by the success that they had. So somehow Bischoff uh, fit nicely uh, in, into the uh, into the organization, and he's somebody who I have not worked with that much. Um, and he, but he's someone who was. Uh, uh, he, Eric was very good. Uh, he'd be a super salesman. If I had a used car lot or a new car dealership and wanted to hire a super salesman, Eric Bischoff would be the first guy that I'd want to hire. If that kind of tells you, you know, where I see his uh, greatest talents. What about Vince Russo? Uh, Vince is. Uh, he was a guy that uh, worked uh, with one of the – he actually was a writer for a magazine and in charge of the magazine. And then yep. when Turner, uh, you know, wanted to build this this division, um, one of the names mentioned they were looking for people that, that had experience, and um, his name was mentioned, uh, and – he came in and had a meeting with uh, uh, with, the, with the head of the wrestling division under Turner, and you know made a good impression. And um, just somebody who has done very well for himself, but just uh, I never really developed a, a strong personal relationship with. Vince McMahon. What's kind of the first thing you think of when you think of Vince? I know an old friend, but what what do you like? What's the well, first you, thing that popped in your head? Beginning, you said, you know, could you try to think of one word? And and so with with him, it's easy. I would say genius. Um, when I started uh, being around the business, I was uh, uh, in college and was had re- had. Wrestled in college as an amateur, and you know was interested in, in you know becoming something. I was involved with professional wrestling, and somebody told me uh, an old timer named George Bolas, the original Zebra Kid. You know, get your education, you know, which I did, and that uh, the wrestling world would all, would always be there. So uh, I, I got my degree and. Uh, I'm, what was the question again? I got off on a tangent. Oh, just about your thoughts of Vince. You said you thought he was a genius. McMahon. Yeah. So um, I worked for, uh, I was in, you know, in the, uh, living in Connecticut at the time. And um, so I, I ended up, uh, you know, working for Vince McMahon. And, um, as part of the creative team along with Pat Patterson. And so Pat, uh, Vince, and I uh, uh, spent an awful lot of time together. And uh, really, Pat is Pat Patterson is uh, the one person who uh, I consider the p- most influential person along with Eddie Graham, but uh, who, who to me was uh, – uh, Really, at the core of the success of, uh, of the of the WWE, he he's a guy who, as a performer, was a main eventer. Uh, he and Ray Stevens in California, were had a, a phenomenal run there, and then went to uh, Minneapolis under Vern Gagne, and continued that that run. So, um, 
I have a lot of respect for him because here's somebody who somebody can tell you something in theory, but it always means a lot more when that same person uh, has a uh, uh, a resume and a track record of having done everything that he's trying to to school you in and and to guide your career. And uh, Pat was uh, a main eventer, had an incredible mind for the business, uh, great for working out finishes. And uh, when uh, all the WrestleMania main events, uh, um, that's one thing that Vince had tremendous uh, confidence in Pat. And once uh, the main event were were set, um, in order to make sure that that premier event for the year was uh, as successful as it could be, Pat would take the uh, uh, the two headliners and basically uh, devote a month to working with them privately in various isolated places where there were, weren't people around to fine tune uh, you know their match. And when it came to the main event for WrestleMania every year, it was always a spectacular thing because Pat had uh, Pat had been involved. Now, what's kind of the first thing that pops in your mind? When I say sting, uh, sting came from the West Coast, where actually he and Lex Luger were 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 partners out there. And then uh, when they came uh, came east, uh, Sting was uh, somebody who had great talent. Was not there have been people who've been successful successful in the in the professional wrestling business who weren't necessarily fans of 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 the of the profession and and that's how I would uh, when I think of Lex that's he had everything he had the physique um and he had a certainly a great degree of success but it wasn't something that uh, like for me as a kid I first fell in love with wrestling when I was about 16 years old and go all the way back, chasing my early years to when Argentina Rocco was uh, selling out the garden in New York every third week, and Chief Big Heart and uh, Haystacks Calhoun, Bobo Brazil. I mean, these were the these were the stars that uh, just you know they they were like the Mickey Mantle of baseball. That's what they were to were, were to professional wrestling and. Uh, um, just uh, people. I, I was always fortunate to be around people that had great talent and were were uh, were pioneers in in building uh, what the world of professional wrestling is today. Huge success, and 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 what makes it so unique is that it's a lot of things like they say like. Uh, Football is huge in North America. Uh, it has expanded some to Europe, but a lot of places in the world it doesn't have the same degree of popularity. Uh, but the one thing about professional wrestling is that it, it really is true, truly global. That you can go anywhere in the world, and I've you know had a chance to travel. I, I haven't been to South America, but been through most of North America. Uh, spent a year in Australia, New Zealand. Uh, made like like they're close to 20 tours of uh, of Japan and professional wrestling is uh, something that has a global popularity. 
What about a guy like Black Bart? What do you think about when you think of Black Bart? Black Bart was a guy who um, had a passion for the business as well, and he and Ron Bass were, were tag partners, and he was a guy who just, he was, he was um, and, and I mean this in a, in a positive way, not a demeaning way, he, just, he was a good old country boy. And he used to have his jaw of tobacco, and he was a guy that went out there with a tremendous pride in what he was doing, and gave his, um, you know, gave his best effort. And he was a guy who, um, you know, there, there were other people that maybe had more, uh, you know, more raw talent, but nobody had the, had more passion for the business than, than he did. And and I'm I never had a reputation as somebody who, um, you know, played ribs because I always felt that if if you if if you did ribs, then you had to expect there was going to be a payback somewhere along the way. Oh yeah, and yep. it was going to happen to you. And so I, I thought, you know, I'm going to avoid that. I'm not going to be someone that get, gets caught in that cycle. But one day, uh, you know, Ron Bass. Um, you know, he uh, he had a uh, he and Ron Ron Bass were, were partners, and they had the they were long riders, and they had those long trench coats. And Bart uh, spent really some really good money in a in a really really expensive uh, Stetson cowboy hat. <laughs> I remember, I mean, he that that meant so much to him. And I remember one night they used to bring the gear back on the ring, the trench coats and the hat. And like I said, I was never one for ribs or something. And, and I, I don't know what caused me to do it, but they, I wasn't with them that night. And they went to the ring, came back, and they used to take the ring gear and used to pile it up, pile it on a chair right inside the dressing room door. And I looked, and there was the, the you know, the ring, the coat all uh, you know, basically wadded up, and there was this beautiful cowboy hat on top, and totally uncharacteristic of me. But as I, there was nobody standing there watching me, and as I walked by, I took my hand and smashed the hat down. <laughs> I laugh about it now, but I'm embarrassed to even share the story. But Ron Bass came back, and he always gave a hundred plus percent every night that he ever went to the ring and had such pride in, in you know, he wasn't somebody who, you know, was blessed with, uh, you know, a lot of money and, and he, he he got the best that he could have and, and that hat was his pride and joy and he came back and I was across the room and not looking directly and he looked at that hat all squashed down and if there was ever a moment that, that I, I think I would have seen a grown man cry. I think that that was the moment. And uh, I think it was, God, it was over 10 years for sure, and maybe even closer to 15 years later that I finally one night, because he was somebody that I was around a lot and really liked, liked personally, and, and he, was a, he was just a good-hearted guy. And I had this guilt all this time because he, he nobody would own up to who did it? Certainly, the guy that bought the ring gear back always treated everybody's gear with respect. 
he certainly never would have smashed the hat down, and that that devastated <laughs> devastated uh, Bart and uh, I I carried that guilt around, and I think it was I know it was at least ten years later, and he he I I rode with him that night, and uh, we were in the car and. He, you know, he, not that he was always real talkative, but he also wasn't real quiet. And he got into the car, and God was, you know, it, it, if it was an hour drive back to where you know we had met or where where we had uh, lived, um, he, he for the, over thirty minutes, over more than that, just sat there staring ahead, never said a word. And finally, he said. Boy, I said, I've gone through all the names of everybody that was in the dressing room that night, all the guys that were there, and he said, trying to figure out which one of the guys would have done this. <laughs> and I'm sitting next to him in the car, and I'm the culprit. And I just stared straight ahead, didn't smile, didn't. And he then says, um, I'm going through all the names of everybody that was there. And he said, and I started with you, and I knew that you would never do anything like that. Now <laughs> you talk about somebody that wants to sink down in the seat that felt like about an inch tall. That was me. And uh, he, he it just, he couldn't, he went through all the names, and he said he, he just couldn't go through the process of elimination and come down to, one, the one guy that he thought was a logical guy that would have done that. And so I kept that secret for, I, I know it was well past 10 years, I know. And we, we uh, uh, he, he had dinner one night with his family and invited me to come over uh, with my wife at the time and had dinner. And in the middle of dinner, I said, I finally, I said, my conscience is getting the best of me. And I said, um, I confess to it. I said, I don't know what caused me to do it. I respected everybody else's gear because I wanted them to respect my gear. And I and I said, I can't give you a reason why I did it. But I said, I'm the one that squashed your hat and just did it, walking by without thinking. And then it was already done, and I couldn't undo what I had done. And he just he looked at me. And of course, you know, ten years later, he, he it wasn't like he he would have exploded that night if he found out who it was, and, and I probably would have had to fight him. But he, uh, I don't remember what his reaction was, but it was like it was almost like relief that ten years later he finally had the answer as to who it was, and you know, he had said himself that uh, that I was the last one that that he ever thought would have ever done something like that. And which made me feel even smaller. That's so great, though. You kept it a secret for that many years. That's great. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Keeping the rib alive. That's great. Yeah, it was one of those things that I did. It was I didn't have malice. Uh, I had nothing against him. It just was – I can't explain why I did it. You walk by, you see something there, and boom, I squashed it. It kept on going. And, and then he came, you know, minutes later and just – stared at it for the longest time and it was something that was done that I couldn't undo <laughs> and then rode with him that night and he was he was it was like 
someone who has lost somebody very dear in their family. He just was, it was the, the silence was deafening. And finally he said, I've gone through everybody that was there that night. Hmm. And he said, and he said, no, JJ would never have done that. And he, and, and of course, oh, so it was uh, 10 years or over 10 years after that. It was well, it was well past 10 years and went to dinner one night and had a drink or two. And I said, I have a confession. And, and by that time he, he didn't have the anger that he would have been that night. I'm sure that night. Oh, yeah, of course. Yep. Now, what about a guy like Buddy Landell? You know, Buddy Landell was somebody who um, a lot of people, well, he, what he was was like a clone of, of Ric Flair. And actually, he, he, the idea with marketing in the beginning was that he was like the the other nature boy, only he was going to be a better nature boy than the nature boy, Ric Flair. And I think initially I managed him and he was a guy who was really, really a super, super nice guy and a a credit to the business. And it just, he was somebody who, uh, like always had a dark cloud over him that, that if anything could go wrong to somebody, it ended up that he would be the one. And I, I remember one example was there was a, uh, a hotel, I think it was somewhere in New York, and it was a, a night that uh, they had like like uh, some snow and sleet and, and some wet weather, and there was a hotel that had two, two you, had, you would go and you'd had a, a, an automatic, like with electric eye sliding door, then you would go further, and then there was a second sliding door. But the, around the first one was uh, uh, susceptible to whatever the weather was that night. So it had rained, and the the uh, the footing was slippery, and the feet went out from under him right in the doorway, and the door automatically closed because he was laying flat so that the, the electric eye didn't pick him up, and the door hit him in the leg, and... Uh, uh, it banged him up pretty good. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was off for a while as a result. Just was a freak, freak accident. And I, uh, I just, I felt sorry for him because he was, uh, he was a good guy. And some, some, some guys just, like I say, a dark cloud hangs over them and, and follows them around. And, and that was Buddy Landell. Love it. And concurrently. Separately, obviously, the J.J. Dillon podcast, like we mentioned, will just be taking a hiatus. Now, you said the end of the season, almost like a baseball season, the end of the season will be taking a brief hiatus. Of course, still check out J.J.'s website, jjdillon.com. Recommend getting the book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, From McMahon to McMahon. And, of course, like I mentioned, a bunch of J.J.'s upcoming personal appearances. Definitely seek him out on the road. And I just have to say, J.J., for the 15 weeks that we spent together, the 15 episodes, you're one of the all-time greats, absolutely, absolute legend in the business. It's been an honor and a privilege and a very, uh, very high respect for you. And it's just been awesome for me to have this experience of being able to tape these 15 weeks of episodes and go down memory lane with you. It's been a very, very cool experience. Well, I, I appreciate you for your talent. And I've told you privately that, uh, 
that you're a big part of whatever success we've had is is because I had you uh, to help guide me along the way. And uh, we just um, – an amazing part is I, I think the very first week we might have had some bullet points of what we were going to talk about. And then when it came time to doing the show, I, I think we went off on another tangent and never got to them and, and never – never went back to trying that formula that uh, each week, uh, and this case, uh, this week is uh, is no different, that, that uh, um, we just, I'm extremely comfortable with you and, and listening to you that you've been comfortable working with me, and um, it just, uh, you, you, you can't sometimes plan to have that kind of a relationship that's either there or it's not, and with us, it's, it's been wonderful, and uh, and I've enjoyed it, and each week the the time seems to fly back, and we we don't have uh you know we don't talk prior to to uh, doing the episodes, and you know sometimes uh, times of the year or or a big pay per view event or something or something happening with some individual in the business that gives us uh, something to start the conversation with, but apart from that we. The, this time just flies by just talking about wrestling because it's something that I think we both love. Absolutely. And obviously, JJ, it's been an absolute honor for me to do this the last 15 weeks. And uh, we'll have a couple things here and there where we'll obviously we'll pop up and, and we'll do some different things. But it's been quite a blast. And um, I wish and you I, luck. I, like I say, I thank you. And, and I want to make it a point that, uh, you know, I, I said, geez, I don't want rumors to start that, oh, he must be really sick or something wrong mm-hmm. or some tragic thing happened, and it's none of the above. It's just sometimes, um, you know, whether it's the baseball season and all of a sudden you need that little time off and then you get that itch to get back together, and that's kind of the closest that I can come to describing this, that that uh, you, and I, you and I have, uh, uh, you know, developed a, a great relationship in terms of doing this show each week. We we don't communicate before we we pick up the phone and start, and whatever's topical at that point, uh, uh, we may run with to start the conversation. Sometimes we just whatever we feel like talking, and the time seems to to fly by. And and you've uh, really made it easy for me, and I've enjoyed working with you, and look forward to working with you again. You're a true professional. Thank you so much, JJ, and. This is just an absolute privilege for me, and I just want to wish you good luck with the International Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. And it's been awesome every week for the last 15 weeks to spend an hour plus of time with an absolute legend like J.J. on the J.J. Dillon Podcast. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling, What the World is Downloading.